Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. We had a call a few weeks ago from Casey in Dallas who was talking about the fact that there was a coworker who kept showing up late for mm-hmm. work and would continually apologize. But that apology wasn't really that useful. Right. right? It was more like an excuse. Right. And so Casey wanted to know how to deal with that. Uh, we got a lot of great responses from listeners, and one of them came from Kat. She works as a receptionist in a hair salon, and she says, a big part of my job is to make sure that all the appointments run as smoothly as possible. Many times this goal is hindered by clients being tardy for their appointments. Management stylists and the front desk team are constantly trying to devise creative and non-offensive ways to tell the client they're late and kindly suggest they show up on time for their next appointment. Some have worked better than others, but my favorite so far has been what the owner of our salon and a stylist of more than 40 years always says to her clients when they're late and they apologize for the dozenth time. She says... Okay, well, we've got a lot of work to do, so let's get started. But she's not really saying you're late. You're stopping everything. No. Right? What is she's... she? Why is she saying only that? <laughs> she's saying we've got a lot of work to do because you don't look so good. Oh, oh, I see. I did not get that at all. So it's the little jab. It's the, the little, little oh, sugar-coated right snark. Oh, right. Yeah. But apparently you it look works. like hell. Let's get to work. <laughs> I need lots of time. Right. You being late means you're not going to look that great. I know. So I'm not going to be late to Anthony today. <laughs> I promise, Anthony, if you say that. <laughs> We're still taking your comments about what to say to people who are late that will hopefully make them not be late again. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Or call us and talk to us about anything related to language or slang or new words or a fight you had about usage or something like that. You can also talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Tom Donovan from Dallas, Texas. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. Well, uh, I had a word that's been in my family for years and years. My grandmother used to say it, and it's basically, bless your heart. And she had many, many applications for it. Generally speaking, it was for... uh, Sympathy, I thought, but then I come to find out sometimes it was about, well, you should have known that. I was wondering if you'd ever heard that before. Have we heard it before? (laughs) (laughs) So bless your heart. So set up the situation for us. What's going on when that comes up? Well, uh, I'd tell my grandmother that I had a problem at school or something, and she would say, well, bless your heart, and uh, and then go into sort of how to address it. But uh, it was always sort of a message, I thought, of sympathy, but the older I got, I Come to find out, uh, I think she thought maybe I was a little slow. Oh, yeah. I I love that one. I grew up saying that myself. In fact, I think of it as sort of the Southern Belle Swiss Army knife. There are so many different ways that you can use it. And, uh, in fact, during the the most recent presidential primary, you might have seen an exchange where— where Donald Trump was criticizing the governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, on Twitter. He said, the people of South Carolina are embarrassed by Nikki Haley. And she just responded, bless your heart. (laughs) Well, that was very effective use. That's right. Yeah. It's so common now that it's widely discussed even outside the South as one of those markers of of Southern speech that you've got to look for because it sounds polite at first, but there's maybe a second or third layer underneath. Well, thank you very much for that. Well, sure. We're glad to help. Thanks for calling, Tom. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and uh, have a great day. You too. Take care. All righty. Bye-bye. I, I get what he's saying. Probably his grandma meant it, his sympathy, though, right? He had a tough day. He was telling her well, about could, it. Yeah. She's like, oh, bless your heart. Which, yeah. I mean, it really is like a Swiss Army knife. But there the other so one, different uses. the cutting one, yep, the knife-edged the one, one. <laughs> that one yeah. is where you... Um, you're like, I've lost the car in the mall parking lot and it's been three days and I can't find it. And someone says to you, bless your heart, which just means you're as dumb as a stump. Right. It's sort of like, <laughs> whose fault is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's the knife version and the ni- nail file version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 877-929-9673.
Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm calling from Omaha, Nebraska. Hi, Sharon. Welcome to the show. What's up? Hi, thank you. Well, I hope you can tell me what's up. I am calling to learn a little bit about a phrase that my grandfather always says. And he says, loose lips sink ships. Everyone uses it, not just my grandfather. In our family, whenever there's a secret or something that no one wants anyone else to know about, they just kind of say, all right, don't worry about it. Don't don't be a loose lip. I don't want to sink ships. So it's just a, a way of keeping a secret. Yeah, or just letting people know, hey, don't pass this on. It's kind of a funny joke where if you want to share something, for instance, we just um, bought a house and we wanted to share with everyone ourselves. And so I called and let my grandpa know, and he said, you don't have to worry about any loose lips over here. Right. <laughs> and I've asked him before, um, when I was much younger, hey, what does that mean, or where is it from? And he said, well, I can't tell you, because I don't have loose lips. <laughs> <laughs> That's unfair. <laughs> so, I'm hoping you can tell me. <laughs> yes, we can indeed. Aww. So the saying, loose lips sink ships, goes back to World War II. There's actually a, a famous propaganda poster, propaganda in the positive sense, because it was targeted at Americans, that says loose lips might sink ships. And the whole idea was you didn't know who was listening to you in a bar or out in public or church or wherever who might hear you say, yeah, I'm shipping out tomorrow, or who, who might hear you say, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to be stationed in Okinawa or wherever. And you just didn't know what kind of details the enemy could put together because the American government knew there were spies. We knew that there were Germans in the United States who were gathering information and sending it back. And uh, the Japanese internment camps came out of that fear as well. Interesting. There was a ton of propaganda. If you Google this phrase, I mean, the posters are all cool. They're definitely from another era. Beautiful watercolor things. And I don't even know what all. Idle gossip sinks ships was another variation. Huh, um, that's don't interesting. Don't talk chum to tops gum. So the av- <sighs> different advertisers got into it as well. Huh, yeah. okay. So I could even maybe order order one of the older posters for my grandfather. Yeah, you oh, can. You yeah. What a good idea. You can download the high-res versions, I believe, from the Library of Congress, and they're quite beautiful, and they would print really nicely on a 11 by 17 page. Well, we won't tell them about huh. it. So, I, uh, one, yeah, of the things, one of the things that I've read was a guy who was talking about his um, boot camp days during World War II when he was inducted and all that they go through, and he, he talks about this hour-long ceremony almost, or this really strange session where the whole session is some commanding officer in the front of a group of these newbies, these green recruits. The whole thing basically is him saying over and over in a lot of different ways, do not talk. Do not tell people where you're going. Don't tell people what's happening. Mm -hmm. Do not write letters to home that say anything except I am fine. It's just the whole thing is about like every little thing that you let slip is a piece of evidence that the enemy now has. Yeah, that, well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, my grandfather about was about uh, 10 or 11 during World War II. So. Oh. Yeah, he might have seen the posters. Yeah, probably or made an impression on him, Seen right? in the movie yeah. reels or something like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. thank you. That's very helpful. Thanks, yeah, Sharon. Yeah, order him a poster. That sounds good. <laughs> I think yeah, dig it's it. going to be a really good gift. All right, take care now. Thanks for calling, Sharon. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. All righty, bye-bye. Bye-bye. War Advertising Council was the governmental organization that put those posters together. Uh-huh. And you probably can think of, they always had like shady looking oh, enemies, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, very evocative. Call us with your language stories, 877-929-9673, or send them an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, my name is Tom Pertell. I'm calling you from Indianapolis, Indiana. Hi, Tom. Hi there. And I have a question about a term I heard some 60 or so years ago, and I've not seen it since. And I wonder if you can help me. The term is uh, Irish pennant, uh, as in flag. And it was used in when I was in the Marine Corps about 60 years ago. If the drill instructor found a loose thread on your uniform where you had perhaps sewn on, re-sewn a button or mended a tear and you, you know, still had a, uh, a a loose thread on there. It was called an Irish pennant. Oh, and this was a terrible sin. This was awful. I'd never seen that term used anywhere. And I wondered if you had some idea of where it came from. So it's Irish, I-R-I-S-H, pennant. Yeah, as in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Pennant, P-E-N-N-A-N-T, in, like a flag. Yeah, like a flag. Okay. 
This belongs to a category of words you could call ethnophalisms, P-H-A-U-L-I-S-I-M. These are derogatory terms that have to do with the characteristics of a certain type of people, a certain group, an ethnic group or a racial group or a religious group. And there's this whole category of these ethnophalisms uh, that basically are about the Irish and about the Irish experience in the United States and have to do with uh, a kind of slightly comical but slightly derogatory view of the world as if the Irish were something less than the people around them. Is that right? Yeah, so there's things like... The Irish ambulance or the Irish baby buggy is a wheelbarrow. Do you know this one? I know. I or have no idea. an Irish screwdriver is a hammer. Or an Irish <laughs> oh football is a potato. Uh huh. Or the Irish funnies or the Irish sports pages are the obituary columns of the newspaper. Oh, oh my goodness. I had yeah. no idea. And I'm Irish. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you you're know, Irish. I'm like three fifths <laughs> Irish myself bit. or something like that. But the thing is, so there's this whole period, and certainly in the late 1800s and early 1900s, where the Irish were a new, newish, um, incoming immigrant group. And a lot of the reaction to the people who had been here for a while was to come up with these ways to characterize them and to diminish them and be derogatory towards them. And this was one of those ways. Not to say that the Irish don't do this to themselves because there is a long tradition of busting each other's chops in Irish culture. <laughs> so I wouldn't be surprised if this were, these were, were and maybe are widely used in Irish communities. Perhaps, um, yes. Uh-huh. But in the military group, we do find that the Irish pennant, meaning a hanging thread or a bit of cloth that... Uh, uh, a rope end that isn't tied up properly, right. or yeah. even a, the hem of a woman's slip, like sticking out below her skirt. We do find Irish pennant used for all of these um, in a military context. It, it kind of burst onto the scene in 1940s, but we also find it in naval jargon in the 1840s. So it had been around in the Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy and among sailors and people at sea for a hundred years before it ever showed up in World War II soldiers' mouths, and it continues to be used to this day. I'll be darned. Well, yeah. this is most interesting. This has just been a, an eye-opener for me. <laughs> Thanks so much. For me too, Tom. <laughs> Take care now. Thanks a lot. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What word have you heard that's caught your ear? Call us about it, 877-929-9673, or send it to us in email. The address is words at waywardradio.org. You know that expression, to bat one's eyes? Uh, yeah, you to know. something you might do to be attractive or right. alluring. Yeah, alluring, right. And you're sort of fluttering your eyelids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you ever wonder where that came from? Is it bat wings? No. Is it like swinging? <laughs> I know, right? I don't you know. You start thinking about it bat and you just eyes? think, what in the heck is what that is it? about? It's a term from falconry. Okay. Batting or to bat is, uh, according to a 1614 text, when a hawk fluttereth with her wings, either from the perch or the man's fist, striving as if it were to fly away. Striving as if to fly away. Yeah, really you know, I mean, it's it's that same kind of thing. So it means to flutter. Yeah. So it comes from it or it's related to it? No, it, it, that was the original sense of to bat and oh, then I to see. bat one's eyes is to move your eyelids like wings. Talk to us on Twitter, W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hey, we've got something special for those of you who love our show but could do without the ads. That's right. Imagine a way with words, the same engaging conversations, the same deep dives into language without advertising interruptions. We're talking about our ad-free podcast feed. It's sleek, clean, and it's just for our supporters. It's at waywardradio.org slash ad-free. It's inexpensive, easy to sign up for, and works with all major podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's an affordable way to support the show and get a seamless listening experience. And if you're feeling generous, why not give a subscription to another Away With Words fan? That's waywardradio.org slash adfree. Sign up today. Your support means the world. Waywardradio.org slash adfree. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett, and here he is, that tall, handsome man, John Chinesky, our quiz guy from New York City. Hi, John. 
Oh, thank you, you guys. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, Martha. How are you guys doing? Super duper. Not Although, as tall as you. I'm a little frightened <laughs> of what kind of quiz you might have because sometimes no, no, they're don't, easy don't. and sometimes they're hard. That's right. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's oh, a grab God. bag. You never know. and We have to mix things up. And speaking of mixing things up, now, now language is an art, but it's also a science. And that science is chemistry. If you add certain elements to one word, you'll find another word. It's like magic, but it's not magic. It's science. Science. For example, and by elements, I mean actual elements. Okay? Okay, great. For example, if you take the hat from a baseball fan and you add some helium to it, it becomes very inexpensive. That's because if you take a cap and add helium or H-E, you get cheap. Yes. Okay, got it. Now you know the premise. Okay. Boy, I don't know my elements as well as you think I do, but okay. Well, <laughs> together I think the two of you can. I'll, I'll give hints, of course. Take a chicken, a female chicken, and a little sodium, and you get a plant that provides a dye used to make temporary skin decoration. Henna. Henna. So henna. plus N-A. Right. Yeah. Very good. Yes. Take an evergreen coniferous tree, add some beryllium, and you get a food element derived from plants that might help keep you regular. Prune? <laughs> 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 well, uh, okay. So the that kind of works, but the eye is missing. The pine and then beryllium is. No, it's a specific, a specific uh, oh, uh, evergreen a... tree. Oh, specific oh. one. Add some beryllium. You know the symbol for beryllium? It's B E, right? Yeah. Yes, it is. Okay. Oh, fiber. Fiber. Yes. Okay. Yes. Nicely done. Take some flashy, ostentatious jewelry. Add some silicon. And you get a brother or a sister. Sibling. Yes. Sibling plus SI. Nice. Silicon and bling gets you your brother or your sister. Take your fancy high school dance, add some platinum, and you'll be on time. Be prompt? Prompt. Yes. Prompt and PT. PRM plus PT. Take a person entitled to inherit, add some iron, and you'll get a cow. Heifer. Heifer. <laughs> Heifer. So air, H-E-I-R plus F-E. Mm-hmm. That's right. Very good. Take segments of the circumference of a circle, add some helium, and strangely, you'll get symmetrical curved structures used to support a bridge or a wall. You will? Yeah, you will. <laughs> Arches. Yes. How do you get that, Grant? I just guessed because I your, your last clip. <laughs> okay. So H-E from, yeah. from helium, then arcs, right. A-R-C-S. Yes, very good. Arcs and helium get you arches. Take a thickened, rough patch of skin, add some copper, and you'll get a branch of mathematics. Calculus? Yes. How do you get that? I don't know. Um, (laughs) It's a branch of mathematics. Um, Okay, so callus. Yes. And then... And the symbol for copper is? must be CU. It is CU. It is. (laughs) Cuprium originally, Yes. Take any cat, any member of the cat family, add some lithium, and you will get thrown a rope to save someone from drowning. Lifeline. Lifeline, yeah. Feline plus L-I. I was going to say Fellini, but that's not right. (laughs) Finally, just take some calcium and add some iron, and you find yourself in a small restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) A cafe. I'll have a double espresso, please. There you go. Yes, I'll have some steamed milk and maybe uh, maybe biscotti. Oh, that was fun. Really appreciate it, John. We'll talk to you next week. Take care now. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye, John. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Daniel Mowry from Omaha, Nebraska. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the show. How can we help? I have an interesting question. What did they use instead of light bulbs in those old cartoon strips when they had an idea? You mean before they started using light bulbs, how did they show that a character came up with a bright idea? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. I never thought about that. What should they use? What do you think they ought to use, Daniel? I have no idea. My mom was thinking an exclamation point. Uh-huh. Oh, that's probably a good one. That's or really good. Maybe a candle. <laughs> probably. We do know that the light bulb was, as a bright idea, was popularized by the cartoon Felix the Cat. Do you know this cartoon? It's old from like the it's from the silent film era, like the 1920s. I remember seeing a couple of his cartoons, but I don't remember in grave detail like all the others. There's an interesting story to that light bulb if you want to hear it. It, it all goes back sure. to... 
this search for a light bulb that would last. You probably know the story of Thomas Edison and how he tried all these different things to put inside a vacuum that would continue to burn without burning out really fast. And finally, in 1879 or so, he came up with a carbon filament that meant that we could make light bulbs and have light bulbs and electricity everywhere instead of using candles or gas lamps or, or, or gas in the house. And he became famous for that. Thomas Edison was the wizard of Menlo Park. People knew that the light bulb was associated with some kind of genius. And it wasn't long after that where it started to be used, um, where light bulbs became pervasive. And light bulbs, by the time Felix the Cat came along, there were all these conventions of written cartoons, like how do you show that a character is looking at a thing in a cartoon? Well, you draw a dotted line from their eyes to the thing. And um, even the Grawlixes, as they became known, the little squiggles that meant naughty words that a character was saying, all these conventions. And one of the conventions was a light bulb representing a bright idea popping up over the top of someone's head. But what's really interesting, the idea of a bright idea goes back well, like 200 years, maybe even more. We find bright ideas as far back as the, the 1700s. Jonathan Swift actually uses it, and it referred to a clever idea or so an inspiration. So there was these two separate paths of culture meeting. One is we already had this idea that a good idea was one that was bright, and we had the idea of a wizard who made a light bulb that we could all use in our houses now, and then they all merged together in Felix the Cat, which is an incredibly common uh, comic strip. Huh. What made them decide to change from what they used to do? I don't know that they did change. I don't know how they represented that. I have a, a couple of books on the history of comics in my house, and I don't remember any of these books talking at length about this particular idea. So that's why Martha and I, our, our eyes went up when you asked your question, because we were like, oh, this is a good one, because it's yeah. not a question that we've heard before. I'm glad I could call up and ask you guys. We yeah. are, too. We love a puzzle, just too. like anyone. <laughs> Thank you for taking my call. I really do appreciate that. We're glad to help. Our you? pleasure, Daniel. Give us another call sometime, all right? I will. Thank you so Take much. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, my mother was an English teacher, and uh, she described many, many times teaching a class and something clicks, and then, you know, you describe it as seeing a light bulb go on over Someone's the kid's head. head, yeah. But we have the notion in English of illumination, literally casting mm -hmm. light on something, way back, like mm -hmm. 1600s easily. And so it was kind of natural that the light bulb should, should continue to embody this idea of creativity and genius and intelligence and uh, the, the eureka moment. Right, the eureka moment. And, and now when I type the word idea on my iPhone, a little light bulb pops up. Oh, because that's the, the emoji that yeah. it wants to suggest for you. That's yeah. awesome. Isn't that interesting? And we're continuing that still. I know. What a long trail. By the way, Felix the Cat was one of the, if not the first, but one of the first things transmitted on television, a little rotating figurine. Is that right? Yeah. I remember Felix. Yeah. Call us with your language question, 877-929-9673. Here's another response from a listener about our call about the co-worker who was habitually late to work and always apologizing. But the mm -hmm. apologies weren't really apologies. You know, mm -hmm. they were more like excuses. We heard from Muriel Vasconcelos, who's a translator here in San Diego with a background in sociolinguistics. And I liked her um, response so much, I just wanted to read the whole thing talking about how to relate to people in the workplace under those uh, circumstances. She says, Candor can be highly effective. People always want to know what others think about them. The late woman's repeated apologies are an effort to get feedback. She wants an answer, especially the answer she wants to hear, and candor instills respect. In the office, the first rule of radical candor is that it has to become part of the workplace climate. Otherwise, a single comment will stand out as hurtful. The boss is responsible for establishing this climate and for correcting the woman who's out of line. The second rule is that a criticism should be tempered with compliments, with a ratio of more compliments to criticism. Always start with a compliment. In the meantime, your coworker might say, you know, it's hard on the rest of us when you come in late. Is there something we could do to make it easier for you to get here on time? 
or just the last sentence by itself, even though it might not be realistic. It shifts the burden of the attack away from the offender, and also asking questions helps to break up bad habits. I thought all of that advice was really That's terrific. wonderful, yeah. She's it's really a- summarized a lot of human interaction books that I've read about how to get things out of people without making them feel like you're mm-hmm. attacking them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly the compliments. And but uh, the- I think the one that stood out most for me was the setting the office culture as a place of candor, right? Mm-hmm. It can't just be that one time. It's got to be consistent. Mm-hmm. So they, they know that they're not being singled out. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Consistency. That's a great point. 877-929-9673. Hello. You have a way with words. Hi. This is Colin from Sheridan, Wyoming. Colin, welcome to the show. What's up? At my old job, my boss and I would kind of have a circular discussion about it, this particular phrase. And the phrase is, in like Flynn. So whenever we would win a project, I would say, great, we're in like Flynn. And my boss would look at me and say, Flint as in, we are in like Flint, which was a version of a phrase I had never heard. And oftentimes he would confer with a woman who worked in our office who is of similar age, and she would agree with him that the correct phrase is in like Flint. So I have three questions. Which is the correct phrase, if there is a correct one, or are they both correct? And if the latter is the case, which phrase is earlier, and is there a generational variation thing going on here? Ah, interesting that you asked about the generational variation, because I was going to ask when you said they were of similar age, what does that mean? I was in my 30s at the time, and I think both of my boss and the other woman were about in their 50s or so. Interesting. I would have expected it to go the other way, actually. Well, there was a film in 1967 called In Like Flint. It was a a kind of spy spoof. And so they might be thinking of that. But uh, the phrase In Like Flynn is much older than that. A lot of people associate it with Errol Flynn, the the Hollywood actor who was was sort of famous for his uh, drug-taking and drinking and, and sexual exploits and to the point where he was tried for statutory rape in the 1940s. But, huh. but, 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 that is not the origin of it because uh, the expression was around longer than that. Yeah, the expression was oh. around before he had the the rape trial, which mm-hmm. he was absolved of. Mm-hmm. He was um, acquitted. Also interesting is the sexual connotations of In Like Flynn didn't appear until the 1970s. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're using it in a non-sexual way, but that's just yeah. worth noting. Mm-hmm. So he may have popularized the term, his his legal case, and he was a big star, right. Australian, I believe. Right, Australian. Um, he was a big star, and, and his trial certainly may have brought the terms to mind and to the fore, but it existed in print. We have citations before the whole thing happened of, of it being used. Mm-hmm. But but the In Like Flint thing, I think I'm with you, Martha. The film from 1967 with James Coburn, that was probably what popularized In Like Flint, mm-hmm. but it's never been that common at all. It's still really rare compared mm-hmm. to In Like Flint. So In Like Flint goes back to at least the early 40s, mm-hmm. uh, and some people have speculated that maybe it's just sort of rhyming slang. And uh, the researcher Barry Popick uh, found it from uh, from 1942 in a newspaper article uh, where somebody wrote, answer these questions correctly and your name is Flynn, meaning you're in, providing you have two left feet and the written consent of your parents. So it's, <laughs> it's been around for a while. But no, you can rest assured that, that you are correct. Oh, cool. Well, thank you. Thanks, All Colin. Right. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Colin. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. So just to be clear, because I know we're going to get a ton of phone calls and emails about this, we believe, as do everyone who's looked into the term, every etymologist that we know, every word researcher, every word historian, that in like Flynn does not originate with Errol Flynn. No. Although his rape trial may have popularized it. Yes, probably did popularize it. Probably did popularize popularize it because he was a big star. Yeah. But it existed before his rape trial, and it was just that convenient rhyming slang. Correct. Great. So you can but, stop writing that email you're sending. <laughs> you're right, composing. <laughs> right, but call us about other things. 877-929-9673 or send us an email. The address is words at waywardradio.org. And you can also talk with us on our Facebook group. Would you say that you and I are five minutes of 11? Does it mean I'm, we're drunk? No. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's, it's my new favorite expression. We're five, five minutes, minutes of, of 11. 11. So 
close together? Yes, yes. Or, we're we very close? friendly, very oh, intimate. Okay, Isn't yeah. that great? Because the two hands and the clock overlap at the five minutes to 11. Yes, and I guess we have to explain that to the younger generation who didn't grow up with analog clocks. They but... do teach it in schools. My son yeah. learns it, yeah. And we have okay. numerous analog clocks in the house, so we make sure he knows. Oh, okay. He also knows how to tie his shoes. <laughs> Eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. Hi, you have a way with words. Uh, hello, this is Elias uh, from Plano, Texas. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you doing, Elias? Doing well, thank you. How can we help? Uh, I got a quick question about um, TV series and how they name their first episodes in a series. I began to notice that a lot of uh, shows refer to their very first episode in their series as their pilot episode, and in some cases, the first episode is literally titled pilot. And I was wondering. Uh, where that term came from, why it's used, and uh, when that practice began. Yeah, uh, this goes back to at least the 1950s in, in TV, and I believe that it also happened in radio before then. Radio had decades before TV came along, a very similar setup of seasonal shows with kind of a story arc over the course of the season and a cast of recurring characters and that sort of thing. But what we're really looking at here is that idea of pilot is something that guides. So a pilot of a plane or a pilot of a ship is someone who guides the ship. And so we have this first episode where we're laying down the first foundation for the characters and the situation and and the things that are going to unfold over the coming season or seasons. Um, what's really interesting to me, and you didn't quite mention it, but some of the things that I'm seeing now marked as pilots are simply episode one, where traditionally a pilot has been this episode that was bought, a single episode paid for by the production company or paid for by the distributing organization um, just to see if the show worked. And then if they like the pilot episode, then they pay for the oh. whole rest of the season or pay for more episodes. But now I'm seeing what you're seeing, and, and I'm finding, like, I'm like, this doesn't look like an episode that they just kind of created out of just to see if it would have worked. This looks like they planned the whole season and yeah. shot the whole season like kind of kind of straight through. Oh, so you're saying that if a TV series is already set on starting the series... Uh, they're pretty sure on it. They'll still continue to use the term pilot as the name of the first episode. Some shows do. Yeah, mm-hmm. some shows do. It might just be like a bow or a hat tip to tradition more than anything else. Um, and ultimately, the word I'm looking at my chief etymologist here. Her name is Martha Barnett. Um, <laughs> but Martha, ultimately, it goes back to a Greek word having something to do with a rudder of a boat, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 And so we Pilot, it's continuously yeah. through Greek and Latin and French and now into English, we have this idea of a pilot as the, the a, a guide of some course or the thing that's steering you through the, through the waters. Gotcha. That's pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah, sure. No problem. Thanks for calling. Really appreciate it, Elias. Thank you, guys. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Not a standalone mm-hmm. episode, but really. But before it was used in TV as a pilot, you might have a pilot experiment as far back as the 1890s and probably earlier. Or you might have a pilot machine, like you would build a, a one-off or a model, mm-hmm. a working model, and that was your pilot device. Mm-hmm. Um, so TV borrowed from other industries where it was just about putting together this, this first iteration, this first real attempt to make the thing that you were envisioning in your mind. Mm-hmm. Call us with your language question, 877-929-9673, or send it to us in email. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Here's a quotation I like from Charles John Darling, who was a lawyer and politician in the early part of the 20th century. A timid question will always receive a confident answer. I think that's true. Sometimes it is you true. give somebody too much room and, and they They'll come, take it. Yeah, exactly. 877-929-9673. More conversation coming up about what we say, how we say it, and why. Stay tuned. Got a minute? We need your help. Head over to gum.fm slash words and share your thoughts in our quick survey. Your feedback matters. It's the backbone of our show's success. Thanks for making our show even more successful. That's gum.fm slash w-o-r-d-s. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett.
researchers at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography here in San Diego and the Western Australian Museum announced a fantastic discovery recently off the coast of Western Australia. It was the Ruby Sea Dragon. Have you seen these no. videos? What is a sea you dragon? Gotta, you got to Google this. It's a big, weird-looking red seahorse, and okay. they were the first people to spot it in the wild. And Josephine Stiller, who is a graduate marine biology student at Scripps, called it this amazing moment. And she said, quote, The discovery shows us that we can still find big, charismatic, bright red fish that no one has ever seen before. And that jumped out at me, the word charismatic. I love that use in uh, conservation and biology, charismatic species. Well, yeah, they talk about charismatic megafauna, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So this would be your Pandas. giraffes and elephants and rhinos and right. things like that. Right, right. And these are the animals that are really appealing, like pandas are mm-hmm. absolutely adorable. As someone said, it's not like you're going to wear a t-shirt that says save the glandular bush crickets right <laughs> or the purple pig-nosed frogs now you know? i will now you you would you would because you're such a contrarian <laughs> we got to get you a t-shirt well no but my wife that. loves banana slugs and would literally wear a shirt that had a banana slug on Bless it because her heart. she just well, thinks they're yeah. amazing they're cool yeah, yeah they are they are cool but i doubt a banana slug would be con- well maybe it is it's not for, charismatic for... megafauna it might be charismatic fauna Right, right. Microfauna, <laughs> yeah. But there are other interesting terms for that as well. Sometimes they're called not not uh, charismatic species, but they're called glamour animals or heroic species or flagship species. Well, the heroic species is interesting because that use of heroic echoes the word hero that is used in advertising and film where they talk about the hero shot. And it's not a shot hmm. of the main, you know, the, the protagonist. It's actually a really beautiful shot of the product. Or it's a really beautiful shot that no kind of kidding. like sets up this psychological moment that you need them to, the the viewer to have. Yeah. In advertising, in advertising, the, the hero, the hero shot, shot. Is, the is hero the... shot is like let's talk about like the hamburger with the steam coming off of it, oh. or, the, or like the ice cream with that perfect twist being formed by the you know as they put it on the cone. Like that's the hero shot. No kidding. So we have heroic, not necessarily meaning someone who saves the day, uh-huh. but like somebody looking or something looking really great. Oh my gosh, like Febreze or something mm-hmm. <laughs> right there in the middle of the frame. That's fascinating. I don't know how you make a hero shot of Febreze. Maybe it's the the mist coming out of the <laughs> nozzle as you right, like slow mo mist. Fascinating. Beautiful people in the background. I don't I don't know what that <laughs> shot is. Well, I always love dipping into these other uh, fields of inquiry, like like marine biology or advertising, mm-hmm. whatever, and, and, and encountering their slang and jargon. Charismatic language is something we want to discuss with you. Anything that's happening having to do with language, 877-929-9673 or email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Betty Jo. I'm calling from Burlington, Vermont. Oh, well, welcome to the show. How can we help? I'd like your uh, comments or thoughts about questions that are not really requests for information but are have a hidden agenda, perhaps a a criticism or complaint. Uh, I'll give the most obvious example. I think everybody's heard this one is uh, where did you buy though this fish? You know, the person is not. (laughs) Actually asking, where do you grocery shop? You know, it's like there's something wrong with the fish. But some other questions, they're a little more subtle, like, um, you know, why do you like that kind of music? Or um, what took you so long? You know, something, it's a little more subtle, and uh, it puts people in a corner. How can you... You know, there's no there's no right answer. Hmm. Um, what got you to thinking about that? Well, I'm a psychotherapist, and so often the anger conflict between people is hidden, and it comes out in these questions that aren't really questions. So these are loaded questions. Yep. And they have they have presumptions in them that are uh, kind of hard to untangle because it is presented as a question. There's judgment, and there's a yeah, some a hidden critique. Yeah, so it sounds like that's what you counsel couples to do to to pay more attention to that. Then yes, and you know, again, my some techniques I've thought up, you know, are to say, hmm, you know, or I'll have to think about that, or uh, just echo the question, you know, hmm, uh-huh. why 
why didn't I wash the dishes right away? Or, you know, just to echo it back and, but not, you know, ways not to engage in a uh, pointless argument. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think the bottom line is we just have to listen to more than the words, pay attention to the context, right? When you do pay attention to the context, one of my strategies, at least at home with my family, is to be the bomb-sniffing dog. But the mm. bomb-sniffing dog, all that he does is he finds the bomb and he alerts people to it, but he doesn't do anything else. He doesn't try to defuse it. He doesn't throw bombs back. He doesn't have his any other method except just to point out, like, when you ask that question that way— that sounds like an accusation. Mm-hmm. On Metafilter, which is a site that I love, it's a discussion forum, they often talk about ask culture versus guest culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes into play here where the ask culture literally is asking what they want. They're saying, mm-hmm. like, how do, where's the lemonade? Because I'm going to pour myself some. Mm-hmm. And the guest culture says, um, this would be a great day for lemonade. Yeah, we exactly. expect you to guess, ah. right? <laughs> Metafilter? Metafilter, yeah. So, but, oh, but Google ask. Google ask culture versus guest culture because that's going to get you a whole bunch of stuff that's been written about this topic even outside mm-hmm. of Meta Filter. But there was a great article in the Guardian about it, for example. Just this idea that some people are direct and some people uh-huh. are indirect, mm-hmm. and lots of conflicts in relationships come from these two cultures butting heads. That's fascinating, and I'm I appreciate the, the references. Yeah, sure. Yeah, maybe you can share that with your clients. Send them. Yeah, check it out. All right. Thanks so much for asking. (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, you have a way with words. Yes. um, My name is Patrick. I'm calling from Palm Desert, California. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Hi, Patrick. Thank you. When do you use the word the and the word the, T-H-E? And I had always been taught that you use the word the with a word that begins with a vowel, like the earth, the art show, and you would use the word the with a word that begins with a consonant, like the car, the house, the party. Mm -hmm. That was what I wanted to talk about. And so, Patrick, you were taught that. Did that sink in for you? Do you use um, the and the in those ways? Sometimes I catch myself not doing the the. The art show, mm-hmm. the earth. Right. So a long E before a vowel, right? Yes. Is what you're saying. You know, a lot of people were taught that way. I was not taught that way. I wasn't either. I oh, didn't you learn weren't. it until I was in my 30s. Oh, or, really? And even then, I don't believe it. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't believe it either. I think some elocutionists got together and decided that having what we call an unreduced E. In front of um, in front of a vowel, um, as opposed to a reduced one, which would be the, mm-hmm. um, is somehow superior. But uh, neither Grant nor I learned this until late in life. I didn't learn it until I was doing this show, and mm-hmm. some guy called oh, a few years okay. ago and said, "Martha, you do this incorrectly." And the thing about that is, most Americans don't differentiate and do not follow that rule. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or most yes. North Americans, I should say, because Canadians have the same thing. Most of us will do the schwa sound almost always, or we will drop the schwa and put that unvoiced th, uh, kind of alight it with the following word that begins with the vowel sound. Mm-hmm. So it'd be vapple or thirth. I'm kind of exaggerating for effect. Instead of the apple, oh. it'd be thirth. Apple. Right. And you said exaggerating, and that's another thing. I mean, for emphasis, I, I might say Grant Barrett is the handsomest radio host you will ever see. She has very limited experience with the world. She hasn't <laughs> met Kai Rizdal. I don't get out much. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, you'll, you'll sometimes use those for emphasis. And I hear it a lot more from politicians, too, you know, especially people in presidential positions. Yeah, I'd imagine it's the kind of thing that you are taught once you become a public speaker. Um, It doesn't actually – I looked in some pronunciation guides. I don't even see this mentioned in some of the more modern pronunciation guides. Mm -hmm. It's mentioned as an artifact of history Mm -hmm. more than it is a thing that you must do in order to be understood as a a good speaker or an educated person. But most Americans at home – don't differentiate. It's almost always the okay. schwa, the... Right. Nobody needs to feel bad about that. No, not at all. Uh, that's right. So, Patrick, did you get the answer you were hoping to get? I certainly did. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much it's for calling. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Take all right. care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. 
This is a show about words and language and the things we say to each other. Give us a call. We'll talk about yours, 877-929-9673, or email your questions and comments to words at waywardradio.org. For my next vacation, I'm considering champing. Something, some kind of camping. Mm-hmm, exactly. It's not glamping, right. which is glamour camping. Yes. Is it cheer camping? You're going to go to a cheerleader camp? Cheerleader camp. What is no. it? What is camping? It's camping in churches. Really? That's a thing? In like, the UK, it is a thing. Really? There are 350 churches as part of the Churches Conservation Trust. It's the organization that looks after hundreds of what they call redundant churches. Mm-hmm. And a redundant church is a church building that's no longer used for public worship and is used mostly uh, to refer to former Anglican buildings Mm -hmm. in the United Kingdom. And so there's this whole organization that will let you spend the night in their churches. You bring your own bedding and you you sleep in a church. They move aside the pews or take them out altogether, and there you are with a bunch of other people sleeping in a church. No, I mean, you can book it for your own family or something. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I was imagining more of a hostile situation. No, no, no. It looks like it's actually quite comfortable, and and they don't let you burn real candles. They have sort of fake candles. But they raise money for preservation. Sure. And and they're trying to popularize this term champing. I haven't seen it uh, (laughs) in any other context. I've been reading up on it. And another term I learned from that, uh, they promise a slap up breakfast. That's just a Quick, down and dirty one. That's what I thought. Or you know, slapping oh, together I see. a couple of pieces of toast. It's a really great breakfast. It's a really great breakfast. But I've eaten British breakfast, and it's usually <laughs> some really kind of weak, limp sausages, right? And a, a runny pool of beans and toast in a rack, and yeah, yeah, toast. It was yeah. toasted yesterday in a rack. Although I, yeah, I don't. I I think British food has gotten better than its its reputation. Okay, this is something ten years, especially but with okay. more diversity there. But isn't that cool? A slap-up breakfast. Slap-up breakfast. Sure. A great one. A good one. A solid yeah, one. Slap yeah. Slap-up means very or unmistakably good or fine of superior quality. Anyway, think about champing. It, it might be fun and creepy, too, in the right kind of old church. Imagine That's something why I from the 1600s, it. right? <laughs> 877-929-9673. Hello. You have a way with words. Hi. My name is David, and I'm from Dallas, Texas. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. What's up? Um, I have a quick question about a word that my great-aunt uses, and I'm not sure if it's a, a family word or a Carolina word, because her family's from Carolina, and or the Carolinas, I guess. And uh, my family just thinks it's a, a family word, but I think it's got some sort of origin. And the word is gradu, and it's kind of when you've got a piece of, uh, of dirt or food something, it's it's kind of grimy, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of similar to schmutz. If you've got a little sure. schmutz uh-huh. on you, you've got a little gradu on you or a little gradu on the counter. And I was wondering if this had any sort of way back origins or if it's just something my Aunt Betty made up. <laughs> well, and how are you spelling yeah, it? Yeah, how do you spell that? I, I don't think I've ever seen it spelled. I, I would say G-R-A-D-O-O. Yeah, I think that's what most English speakers would do probably. I have seen it as G-R-A-D-U, gradu. It's not your Aunt Betty. She's not alone on this. There's, this is fairly common in the United States, particularly in the South, although um, not common enough to make it even into most slang dictionaries or the Dictionary of American Regional English. And every usage that I find has it uh, mentioning as crud or gunk or grime or dirt. Uh, occasionally it's a little more... Um, expansive than that, like a pile of trash could be gradu, but usually it's just like a, a mark or a blemish or mm-hmm. some kind of like small little un- unacceptable griminess. Yeah, schmutz, like schmutz. you said. Yeah, schmutz. <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, there's a one entry for this in Paul Dixon's book of family words, which is funny because you mentioned that you thought it might be a family word, but he specifically says mm-hmm. in this entry, he has enough people reporting this from around the country that it can't really be one that exists only for a single family. A lot of people say it. That's yeah. so interesting. It's really handy, too. I mean, it sort of sounds like what Gradu, it is. Gradu. Yeah. So the last mm-hmm. time we talked about this in the show, and it has been a while. What was that? Seven years, years. ago or six or seven years, years ago? Um, I had a, a kind of half-cocked theory that it had to do with uh, corruption of the French glado, which mean would kind of mean um, 
greasy water or fat water. water I like that Water theory. that has stuff in it. So it's G-R-A-S space D apostrophe E-A-U. And it's not a bad theory, particularly as the entry in Paul Dixon's Family Words book mentions that it could be wastewater or the huh. dishwater, mm-hmm. right? Or dirty snow or runoff or that sort of thing. But the thing is, the more I think about that, I, I don't have the etymological proof. I don't have the citation record that shows that that's the origin of it. In the meantime, I found mm-hmm. a French word which is very similar, which also means dirty. And it is crado. And so it's C-R-A-D-O. And it's a corruption of a word mm-hmm. which is cradangue, or C-R-A-D-I-N-G-U-E. And they're both kind of ultimately corruptions of a word meaning filth or filthy. That mm-hmm. word I know has existed in French as slang since the 1960s. It's possible that it was transmitted to the United States, although I don't know how, because French stopped donating new words to anything except the fashion industry in English uh, a long time ago. So I don't know how it would have gotten here. But in any case, it's not Aunt Betty alone, and it is fairly widespread. I find evidence in Mississippi, Pittsburgh, Louisiana, Florida, Texas, a couple people in Virginia. So... Unless Aunt Betty really got around. (laughs) Unless Aunt Betty, yeah, unless she's on a speaking tour teaching people a word. (laughs) That is so interesting. I really like the Frenchness of that, like you said. That's very cool. Well, David, thank you so much for calling. Thank y'all. I appreciate y'all a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Bye. If you know the word gradu to mean grime or schmutz or crud, uh, let us know, 877-929-9673, or tell us the whole story and where you're from and email to words at waywardradio.org. talking the other day about the fact that the world of horses has given us so many terms. We were talking specifically about the term free rein Mm -hmm. and giving someone free rein means you sort of loosen your grip on the reins and give them a little more freedom. And I was thinking about the fact that just horse hair has also given us terms. The term curtail comes from the idea of horses with docked tails. And it comes to us uh, from Latin originally via French. And then the other word that I was thinking of that has to do with horse hair and tails is, of course, our word bangs. Oh. The kind of bangs yeah, that come down. Yeah, or the British would call the fringe. The fringe, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, that hair that is a common cut originally referred to a horse's tail. Cut bang across. Bang cut, across, like yeah. slash or just sharp edge, right? Yeah, oh, yeah so the bangs on your head are, are an echo of a horse that had a tail cut short. 877-929-9673 or talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Want more Away With Words? Listen to years of past episodes at waywardradio.org or find the show in any podcast app or on iTunes. Our toll-free line is always open, so leave us a message at 877-929-9673 and we'll take a listen. We love to get your messages at words at waywardradio.org or hit us up on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D and look for us on Facebook. This program would not be possible without you. Grant and I are out to change the way we listen and think about language, and you're making it happen. Thanks also to senior producer Stephanie Levine, director and editor Tim Felton, director Colin Tedeschi, and production assistant Emma Kelman in San Diego. In New York, we thank quiz guy John Chinesky and that master of keeping it real, Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc. From the Recording Arts Center at Studio West in San Diego, I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. So long. Bye-bye.